Hey, Reveal listeners, if you've been listening to American Rehab, you don't need me to tell you about the importance of great investigative journalism. It really helps us when our listeners rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It's so easy to do, and it helps others find our show. So we've got a bonus for the next 200 people who review us, Reveal Tote Bags. Like our t-shirts, they're simple and elegant, dark blue with the word facts written across the front in bold type. So here's what you got to do. Text the word REVIEW to 474747, and we'll give you instructions on how to get one while supplies last. Again, text the word REVIEW to 474747. You can text STOP at any time, and standard rates apply. And when you leave the review, if you want to tell them that Al Ledson is your all-time favorite host, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to be mad at that. Thank you so much for your review on Apple Podcasts. It makes a huge difference. From the Center for Investigative Reporting in PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Ledson. Hey, Sarge. Hey, come downstairs right quick. They're about to get open. This is a scene shot with a police officer's cell phone camera. Four or five cops are prying open a safe with a crowbar. No, they almost got us. They crank a few times. The safe opens and reveals bundles of cash wrapped in rubber bands. Oh, there you stop. Stop right now. That's their sergeant. Take a picture of it, Taylor. We'll record it right now. I need light. Nobody touches you. Understand me right now. He's telling them to do everything by the book. Everything they learned at the police academy. Take photos. Don't disturb a crime scene. Yeah, keep the camera on. Don't touch it. Stand next to it. We'll call it out of the fence. Keep recording. No one's touching this one. Keep your camera on. I got you. Just we don't need It looks like a police raid in progress. But it was all a show. You see... Moments before the cops shot this footage, they'd already opened the safe and stolen $100,000. They left $100,000 behind to stage their phony cop work and fake everyone out. For years, these cops were part of a specialized elite unit in Baltimore, Maryland called the Gun Trace Task Force. Six detectives and two sergeants were supposed to be in charge of getting bad guys with guns off the streets. Instead, they used their badges to get into homes and cars, searching wherever they wanted and taking whatever they wanted. They robbed people, stole drugs, and planted evidence. They covered all this up and then faked their timesheets to almost double their salaries while they were doing it. Baltimore was already notorious. On TV, The Wire introduced Americans to the city's drug economy. In 2015, Freddie Gray died in police custody, setting off days of protests. Baltimore's per capita homicide rate is among the highest in the nation. And on top of all of this, the Gun Trace Task Force operated their eight-man crime ring. They were caught after a year-long FBI investigation and tried on federal racketeering charges. Mary Rose Madden, a reporter for WYPR in Baltimore, is going to pull apart the story of this police unit gone rogue. Mama Dugando grew up in Baltimore and was a Baltimore cop for 12 years. He testified in hundreds of trials. But on February 5, 2018, he sat on the witness stand not wearing police blue, but instead 
prison orange with a bushy beard he'd grown in jail. He was hoping for a lighter sentence by testifying against two fellow officers in the gun trace task force, Marcus Taylor and Daniel Herschel. During the trial, prosecutors played tape from wiretaps they'd put on Gondo's phone and car. What's up, Wayne? Hey, G, I just want to give you a random heads up what's going on today. All right. That's Sergeant Wayne Jenkins, leader of the task force. He's giving Gondo the daily rundown of what the task force cops would be doing that day. Me and Taylor's going to go to the joint. We're going to watch the joint and try to get something big coming out. Right. uh, Whatever you and Ram want to do. On the stand, Gondo described how he and the other task force cops would operate. Sometimes they'd shake people down by driving up fast to a random group of black men standing on a street corner. The cops would open their doors, jump out, and chase whoever ran. Then they'd steal whatever the person was carrying. They'd call these door pops street rips or rip and runs. Yo, Wayne is Ugh. mad as a bitch, yo. Just say, yo, if you don't go out here and rip and run for me tonight, I'm going to kick him out of the squad. Wayne Jenkins was furious that one of his detectives was late for a planned rip and run. I said, yeah, Wayne, listen, don't be emotional. These cops operated in plain clothes, and they'd rip and run anywhere from 10 to 50 times a night. Sometimes, if they found drugs, guns, or money, they'd take them and make no arrest, tell the victim he got off easy, or got taxed. But other times, they'd go after what they called big dudes, suspected drug dealers they thought would have lots of money. So, yo, we got another we to go after, yo. Who? Herbert. Oh, Herbert, he back out? I think he did his time, time served, he back out. Yeah. He ain't even going to be hard. He's easy to get. Sometimes they'd arrest them, pocket a portion of the drugs or money, and turn in the rest. Gondo said he preferred to do it this way, to skim off the evidence. And he said on the stand, what drug dealer is going to complain that some of his drugs have gone missing? It was with this in mind the task force cops started following an ex-convict named Ronald Hamilton. They knew Hamilton had gone to prison before for drug charges, and he had a serious gambling habit. Hamilton seemed like a perfect target. So the cops lied to get a search warrant for his home. Ronald Hamilton was a witness at the trial. There was no recording allowed in the courtroom, so I drove out to his house in the rural suburbs, 45 miles outside of Baltimore. It sits on a cul-de-sac overlooking farms. Here, Hamilton's house. There's a trampoline in the yard and a basketball hoop in the driveway. Cars in the driveway. It's a good sign. Good, how are you? I'm doing pretty good. Hamilton lets me into his house, and we sit in his living room. He seems nervous. So when I first came, you weren't totally sure if you wanted to talk. I really didn't. I feel that my life was in jeopardy. You know, I do. I ain't gonna say in sugarcoat nothing. I ask him to repeat the story he told on the stand. How in July 2016, he was at Home Depot shopping for window blinds with his wife when he noticed a man hovering around them. He looked away. And then I turned back and I looked back. He was still there. Went to the register, came back, sat back with my wife, noticed the guy was still there. Uh, still didn't think nothing of it. Left out of Home Depot. 
After a few minutes, he and his wife turn into the parking lot of a dry cleaners. That's when I was surrounded. Four, four armored cars surrounded me. Oh, wow. Snatched me out the vehicle. He recognizes the guy from Home Depot jump out of one of the cars. It's Detective Gondo's partner, Jamel Rayum. He didn't ask anything but where was my money at. So I'm like, what? So he took the money out of my pocket and stuck it in his vest. From there, they put me in one car, put my wife in another car. What's up, Jay? Hey, what's up? We are... A wiretap catches what happens next. Gondo calls the task force leader, Wayne Jenkins, and tells him they have Ronald Hamilton and his wife. Yeah, I got, I got the uh, male and I got the female. Okay, hey, uh, did, you tell them, did you tell them anything at all? No. All right, just tell them you got to wait for the U.S. attorney. And when I get there, you got to introduce me as the U.S. attorney. Treat me like, hey, sir, how are you? We got our car in the pocket. I got you. The cops drive Hamilton and his wife to another location. As I was getting out the car... Another officer walked up to me and identified himself as this uh, federal agent. Wayne Jenkins pretends to be a U.S. attorney. The cops tell Hamilton they'd seen him do three controlled buys. That's three drug deals. And they took me inside, told me, we got you under surveillance. Uh, we got you, you know, rear hand. I said, okay. But Hamilton calls their bluff. You got me doing that? Well, let's go down to the federal courthouse. They put Hamilton and his wife in one car and get on the highway. But... They pass the exit for the courthouse. So I said, where are we going? He said, we're going to your house. So I had leaned over to my wife. I said, be quiet. They about to rob me. She said, what? Like, hunches are like, what's going on? I said, just be quiet. Don't say nothing. They pull up to the Hamilton's house, and the cops let his wife call the children. They have two young kids and a teenager. She tells them to leave the house. The cops search the kids' book bags on their way out. Brought us in, set me aside. Set my wife next to me in the chair. Hamilton and his wife sit in the living room handcuffed while a cop with a gun watches them. The rest of the crew do what they call a sneak and peek. They case the house. In the Hamilton's bedroom, they find $50,000 in a heat-sealed package and another 20000 in loose hundreds under a towel in the closet. They leave the 50000 behind and pocket twenty. Hamilton says the money was all legitimate, that he has receipts for all of it. He says the cash is from his businesses. He owns several rental properties, plus he buys and sells used cars. So, man, I'm not doing nothing like that, man. I stay in my own lane. I stay to myself. I was like, uh, I asked him, can they just get out? They do. And Hamilton runs upstairs and looks for his cash in his closet. It's gone. He runs out his front door and yells to them. I cussed at him and said, you robbed me anyway, you crooks. Four officers meet in a bar in South Baltimore and split the money. Hamilton tells me since that day, his wife doesn't want to be alone in their house. His kids won't even come to the house. They're so scared they stay with his ex. Ron Hamilton was one out of 32 witnesses who testified at the trial. Some were drug dealers, others law-abiding citizens. Defense attorneys painted them all as professional liars. And they also downplayed the cops' behavior. Detective Daniel Herschel was one of the defendants. His lawyer, William Papura, said some of the things his client did were common practice in the Baltimore Police Department, like lying on timesheets. It's condoned with a wink and a nod, therefore where's the fraud if it's allowed? And Detective Herschel stole from people, yes, 
but he didn't plan to. If you didn't intend to take money and it became an afterthought once the money's there and it's on its way to evidence, then it's a theft. Simple as that. Robbery carries a heavier sentence. I mean, robbery is a crime of violence. If he intended from the beginning to take money and you have your badge and your gun, then it becomes a robbery. They robbed people while acting as police officers because it gave them cover. That's Derek Hines, one of two federal prosecutors in the case. He argued that it was the other way around. The cops did plan, and they used their police badges to operate as a gang of robbers. That's why they did it when they were working. Essentially, they could rob with impunity because they believed that no one would believe the potential criminal or drug dealer that they took the money from over their own words. Leo Wise was the other federal prosecutor in the case. In his closing argument, he said that Ronald Hamilton's lifestyle was not on trial. Same for the other witnesses. I mean, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. You can't rob drug dealers. You can't rob people who aren't drug dealers. So however he made the money, whether he made it selling drugs or selling Girl Scout cookies, it was a question of what had the defendants done and had they taken the money. The trial lasted eight days. The jury found Marcus Taylor and Daniel Herschel guilty of racketeering and robbery. They face up to 60 years in federal prison. The other six cops, Wayne Jenkins, Thomas Allers, Mamadou Gondo, Jamel Rayum, Maurice Ward, and Avodio Hendricks pled guilty. Allers is the only one who's been sentenced so far to 15 years. That's Mary Rose Madden of WYPR in Baltimore. And Mary Rose, after listening to that story, I don't know, I mean, it just, it seems hard to believe that no one knew what the task force was doing before they got busted. I mean, did anyone raise any concerns before the trial? Well, before the trial, it was an open secret that some of the task force cops were problems. The Baltimore Sun had reported that the city settled police brutality lawsuits naming Daniel Herschel. But Herschel remained on the police force, and he was even promoted to the gun task force. And once he was there, he had almost unlimited power to roam the city and shake people down. Rapper Young Moose and his father Big Kev own a store in East Baltimore called Out the Mud. They sell custom tees, hoodies, and mixtapes, CDs of local rap artists. Big Kev says Detective Herschel targeted his family repeatedly over several years. It started when young Moose was a teenager and hanging out with a friend Herschel had his eye on. Herschel was really after this guy that my son was friends with. Big Kev says Herschel planted drugs on his son and his friend. Both of them wound up getting locked up. My son wound up coming home on bail. And the young man, he wound up getting 15 years. When young Moose got out, he began writing songs about Herschel's reputation. Young Moose looking. Dang you, T. Herschel, you're a racist ass. And he was talking about how um, Herschel harassed him, how Herschel planted drugs on him. I was like, man, I said, I said, yo, I said, Moose, that's one thing we cannot do. We can't make a song about the police that's going to bring us trouble. But he's so young, so he made that song, and, and once it got out there, it, it went crazy. He got back to Herschel and embarrassed him. Now on his own. Herschel put the pressure on. He arrested Moose again in 2014 and his parents and brother the same year. Big Kev calls them junk arrests. 
He says Herschel would follow them around, park his car in front of the store. Big Kev tried to report what Herschel was doing. He called Internal Affairs. That's the branch of the police department that investigates complaints against their officers. They was like, well, he's a cop. He can sit in front of the store as long as he's not bombing you. I said, well, I had my video cameras in the store. I said, if you come in here, try to put something on me, you're going to be on videotape. And they was like, well, you can't videotape him unless the video camera is where he can see it. And then I, I start cussing him out. He said, all right, all right, Mr. Evans, calm down, calm down. I understand where you're coming from. I'd be crying in, in tears because he was after my whole family, you know. Big Kev says he called Internal Affairs several times, but he never got anywhere. He says he even talked to Herschel about it. I said, is you racist, Herschel? I said, why are you bothering my family? He said, no, I'm not racist. My girlfriend black. I said, why you do what you do? He said, because I'm the police. I do what I want to do. Some of the task force cops were black. Some were white. Most, but not all of their victims were black and from the inner city. And unlike police brutality we've heard about in other cities around the country, these cops were relentless, motivated by greed as well as racism. How did these cops get so much power in the first place? They can go any and everywhere they wanted in the city. Any and everywhere. They had the key to the city. And how many of the people they sent to prison were innocent of the charges brought against them? Uh, So our estimate is loosely at this moment around 2,000. That's coming up on Reveal. Reveal is brought to you by the University of Virginia and the Sacred and Profane podcast. We often hear it's not polite to bring up religion, but we lose so much when we don't talk about religion. Sacred and Profane is a podcast that isn't afraid to tackle religion. Next up, how white Christians built and maintained Confederate monuments across the U.S. Sacred and Profane is produced by the Religion, Race, and Democracy Lab at the University of Virginia. Catch season two wherever you listen to podcasts. Support for Reveal comes from Blinds.com. Transforming your home into even more of a sanctuary is easy and affordable with Blinds.com. They make it simple to shop top quality blinds, shades, and interior shutters from home with easy online ordering and free shipping. Blinds.com has helped millions of homeowners through the process, and they guarantee the perfect fit whether you DIY or have them install everything for you. Go right now and see how much you can save at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. From the Center for Investigative Reporting in PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Letson. Eight cops who once belonged to Baltimore's Gun Trace Task Force are behind bars. Before they were caught in an FBI investigation, they spent years shaking people down, stealing hundreds of thousands of dollars from them. They even stole drugs and put them back on the streets. After the death of Freddie Gray in 2015, the Justice Department and the FBI came to town to investigate the police department. Now, it's a little mind-blowing to think that the cops of the Gun Trace Task Force were operating their illegal racket during the very same time investigators were in town. It's, It's beyond brazen. And it opens up a lot of questions. Did they get help? 
Were others in the department protecting them? Were there people tipping them off when the investigation got too hot? And did the corruption end with the conviction of the task force officers? That brings us to the mysterious death of a police officer. His name was Detective Sean Souter, and he died several weeks before the trial of the Gun Trace Task Force officers began. He wasn't on the task force, but they knew him. Good afternoon. Uh, just after noon today, 18-year veteran homicide detective Sean Souter was pronounced dead. Um, 43 years old, married, father of five, his wife Nicole. Detective Souter was found lying face down in a vacant lot with a bullet hole in his head, shot with his own service revolver. Thousands of people came out to Souter's funeral. Almost the entire Baltimore force was there to mourn him. As a homicide detective, his heart, his mind was on work, dedicated to bringing peace to the families. Souter's death remains unsolved despite an intense ongoing investigation and a hefty reward for information. Mary Rose Madden of WYPR looks into Souter's death and the questions that remain around Baltimore's police force. Sean Souter's death seems to haunt the Baltimore Police Department and the city. Was it murder? Was it a suicide? And was it just a coincidence Souter was shot the night before he was to answer questions under oath about the Gun Trace Task Force? It was grand jury testimony that never happened. The task force trial hadn't begun yet, but prosecutors still had threads they wanted to follow, possibly additional charges. They wanted Souter to talk about a night from April 2010. He was in an unmarked car, racing down the streets of West Baltimore. In a car ahead, Sergeant Wayne Jenkins and Detective Ryan Gwynn. Jenkins would later become the head of the gun task force. During the chase, the man they were pursuing was in a crash and a bystander was killed. Later, 32 grams of heroin and a digital scale were found in his car. The man the cops were chasing was Umar Burley. Burley insisted the drugs were planted, but he had a criminal record, and his lawyers told him no one would believe him. So he pled guilty to manslaughter and the drug charge, and he was sentenced to 15 years in prison. And that's where he was in March 2017. He was watching television when he saw a news flash. I just briefly caught it. It had that police from Baltimore City were indicted on criminal charges for a slew of things. And the guys was like, little uh, Baltimore, is any of them your police? But it flashed so fast, the names, I couldn't really tell, you know, who they actually was. Umar didn't catch Sergeant Wayne Jenkins' photo flash on the screen. But 10 minutes later, he got an email from someone he knew. Yes, they finally got him, man. You, you might be coming home. They finally got them corrupt cops. Umar did get to come home. After they were indicted in 2017, some of the gun task force cops started pleading guilty. And they opened up about the past. They said Wayne Jenkins told them he once planted drugs after a car chase. Federal prosecutors followed that lead and figured out it was Umar. After spending more than seven years in prison, a judge vacated Umar's charges and he walked out of the courthouse a free man. From day one, I said that the drugs was planted, but no one paid me any attention and I got sentenced. It's been pure hell. 
Wayne Jenkins confessed to setting Umar up. He signed a plea agreement, and in it, he said he told an officer to get drugs and plant them in Umar's car. That cop is referred to in his plea as officer number two. Then, Jenkins said he sent another officer, referred to as officer number one, to find them. The police commissioner at the time said officer number one was Sean Souter. He said Jenkins duped Souter into finding the drugs. But Umar Burley has another story. He says all the cops were in on it. His lawyer, Steve Silverman, says when the three officers first came out of their cars and approached Umar, their faces were covered. They came out in black clothes, masks. He was being robbed. Burley hit the gas because he didn't know what the heck was going on and was truly terrified and didn't know who these people were with no badges, no marked cars, no nothing. Silverman says the cops had to plant the drugs in Umar's car. They had to justify why they'd chased him in the first place. Plus, they had to explain the car crash that killed a bystander. So they had to. There was a homicide. There was a dead person. And they would have never been able to explain why they were in a high-speed chase to begin with because obviously they're not going to say they were going to rob him. So that's when they called another officer to come and bring some heroin to plant it in the vehicle. In this scenario, Detective Souter is an accomplice, not an innocent dupe. And what about the third cop who was there that day, Detective Ryan Gwynn? Is he officer number two, who, according to Jenkins, was sent to get the drugs to plant in Umar's car? Prosecutors told me they believe he's innocent and didn't charge him. He's still on the force. Outside the courthouse, a reporter asks Umar how he feels about that. How does that sit with you now? It's, it doesn't sit well with me at all because my life was affected by this and I'll never be able to be the same again. But he gets to continue on in his job and continue on his life like nothing happened. And, and, and that's not fair at all. That officer is one of a dozen Baltimore cops whose names came up during the trial of the Gun Trace Task Force. Witnesses said those 12 committed crimes with the task force or helped cover them up. And there were others who weren't identified at the trial. For example, one task force cop said they were tipped off to the FBI investigation by someone in internal affairs. Federal prosecutor Leo Wise says someone in the state's attorney's office alerted the cops, too. There was evidence that they were tipped off at various points, that there was an investigation, but it didn't stop them. I mean, in a, in a remarkable way, it didn't cause them to even slow down, really. As you can imagine, when an entire police unit goes to federal prison for racketeering, there are a lot of problems left. Wise says the FBI is still digging through the information they gathered in the Gun Trace Task Force investigation. There could be more federal indictments. And local attorneys are combing through all the arrests the task force cops made between 2006 and 2017. Deborah Levy is in the public defender's office. She's in charge of calling up these possibly tainted cases. Our estimate is loosely at this moment around 2,000 because we think when we start adding in the officers who were implicated at the trial, we'll expand to approximately 2,000. That could mean 2,000 cases where people were falsely imprisoned. Levy says since defense attorneys weren't able to see an officer's internal records, 
they weren't able to see if they had prior complaints of misconduct. The conduct was going undisclosed, and people were just missing out on a fair trial. Umar Burley and his lawyer say they're going to sue the city and the police department. In those 2,000 cases, some of those could turn into lawsuits against the city, too. Usually, city taxpayers are on the hook for settlements involving officer misconduct. But in this case... We will argue that the city is not responsible for the harms caused by these officers. Judge Andre Davis is Baltimore's city solicitor. These ex-officers were acting outside the scope of their employment. They were acting with malice, and they were pursuing their own purposes. And anyone who was harmed will have to look to the individual assets of those former officers in order to seek compensation. The judge in each lawsuit will decide if that argument stands. If it does, the victims of the gun task force cops will likely receive less money than if they were able to settle with the police department and the city. On the other hand, making individual cops dig into their own pockets to pay for lawsuits might affect how police officers behave when they hit the streets. And there is a lot for them to do in Baltimore. The city's crime rate is heartbreaking on a daily basis. Three teenagers were shot in just one day recently. Poverty, drugs, and violence are triple threats that hit poor and black communities in Baltimore. And corrupt cops make it so much worse. There's enough narcotics on the streets of Baltimore to keep it intoxicated for a year. That's Anthony Batts. He was the police commissioner during the unrest in 2015 after Freddie Gray's death. He was talking about the 27 pharmacies where prescription drugs were looted. Criminals are selling those stolen drugs. There are turf wars happening, which are leading to violence and shootings in our city. But the criminals were aided by corrupt cops. At the task force trial, jurors heard that during the unrest, Wayne Jenkins, the task force leader, brought trash bags full of prescription drugs to a friend who then resold them. And he wasn't the only task force member who resold drugs back to the streets. Another said he'd been tipping off drug dealers to police whereabouts for 16 years, protecting them from the good cops doing real police work and from the other cops who wanted to rob them. The day the verdicts came down in the gun task force trial, Alex Hilton came to the federal courthouse. He was close to tears. A lot of people don't believe these stories are true, but but they are. And it's it's crazy because we're talking about cops. Hilton said he needed to see these officers tried and in handcuffs because one of them used to torment him years ago, enough to make him move out of his East Baltimore neighborhood. Every time I see a police car or a knocker car, I'm looking to see if he's in there. I, I can't get his face out of my mind. I just, you know, I, I just, it, it just was that bad. It just was that bad. Hilton was trying to figure out if he felt any closure now that eight police officers were in prison. Is it totally over with? Probably not, because it's, it's a lot of more work to be done. No one thinks the Gun Trace Task Force could have done what it did as a party of eight. As someone told me, in Baltimore, there are drug kingpins and crooked cops, and there's a large supply of both. That was reporter Mary Rose Madden from WYPR in Baltimore. 
Federal prosecutors may bring more charges related to the gun trace task force in the coming months, but they won't be able to charge all the people who say, look the other way or gave them a wink and a nod. There were red flags alerting people in the criminal justice system to problems with the task force members. For instance, when task force officers testified as witnesses in court about the arrest they made, their behavior should have come into question. But it didn't. We talked to Michael Schatzow. He's the chief deputy state's attorney for Baltimore. His office prosecutes crimes in the city. There's a a, a lot of places that we could look in this story about the Gun Trace Task Force and see that the system failed. I'm curious, where do you think that your office failed? Well, I don't think our office did fail. You know, would it have been helpful if we had had the same kind of information that the feds stumbled upon if we would have done the same thing with it? They got onto that investigation because they happened to be in the right place at the right time. But what if they weren't at the right place at the right time? Would the Gun Trace Task Force still be doing what they are doing? And how would you find out unless you did your own investigation? We have an investigations unit that has investigators, but they do not have police powers. The investigators we use to investigate crimes are the Baltimore Police Department. And even officers who have no involvement in corrupt activity are not going to be particularly eager to assist us in investigating whether other officers are engaged in illegal activity. So how do you do it? You either do it through the Internal Affairs Department or the Baltimore Police Department, or you get a federal agency involved in conducting such an investigation. But over the years, there have been complaints to the Internal Affairs of the Police Department about members of the Gun Trace Task Force. Your office had access to those files, so if you guys had followed up on those complaints, maybe you would have found this out before the FBI came in under your watch. Having access to files doesn't mean very much when all that's in the file is a mere allegation. But when the task force officers made an arrest uh, and they were called to testify as witnesses, wouldn't you have known about the record of complaints that were lodged against them at that point? We would know about some of the complaints, and some of those officers were officers about whom we made disclosures to defense counsel. That information was then either utilized or not utilized by the defense attorneys as they saw fit. Michael Schatzow is the chief deputy state's attorney in Baltimore. Since we did the interview, we learned about a civil rights lawsuit against the state's attorney's office, as well as the city of Baltimore and police department. It's brought by a man who says members of the Gun Trace Task Force broke his jaw and stole his money. The Gun Trace Task Force weren't the only police who were ripping and running in Baltimore. He said to me, you need to calm down. It's just one less drug dealer we gotta worry about. One less piece of We revisit a story of a man who died while he was running from the police. Next, on Reveal. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Letson. Eight cops from a specialized Baltimore police unit are now in prison for racketeering and robbery. One of their rackets was chasing people through the streets, then robbing them. But it wasn't just the task force cops who chased people and victimized them. Our next story first aired in April of 2017. Reporter Mary Rose Madden of WYPR was poring over old cases brought against the city for police misconduct when she ran across this one. 
It's about a man who died while he was running from the police. Mary Rose decided to investigate further. The story begins in an alley in West Baltimore. It was the middle of the afternoon in August of 2007. Jay Cook was getting into his car to go get a money order to pay his rent. He could have walked. The grocery store is just a short walk away. But he was skittish. A week earlier, Jay was robbed at gunpoint right here behind his apartment building. And so when he saw two people in the alley watching him, he took off. Black male, white t-shirt. That's the description the police called in. Later, they'd report that Jay was holding his arm tightly against his body, which to them signaled he was concealing a gun. Did Jay know they were cops? Accounts differ about whether or not they were in plain clothes or uniform. But it might not have mattered even if he knew they were cops. It's not uncommon for black men in Baltimore to take off running when the police start for them. And Jade had some brushes with the law in the past. Come on, Franklin. Franklin and Fulton. You said Franklin and Fulton? Jay was running through streets and alleys. Finally, he reached this overpass, bordered by this chain-link fence. 18 hour block of Franklin. He's jumping down onto the underpass on the 40. And you guys up there with her? Route 40 runs through West Baltimore. Jay squeezed through a narrow opening here and clung to the fence 70 feet above the highway. Back at the apartment, Jay's fiance, Linda Hammond, who everyone calls precious, started wondering what was taking Jay so long. She went outside to look for him. Well, I see one of Jay's friends, and he's crying. And he's running through the back alley, and he's crying, and he's just saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And I just kept asking him what's wrong, and he wouldn't tell me what was wrong. Precious found the spare key, okay, jumped in the car, and followed police sirens and helicopters to the bridge. And I looked down, and I see a shoe. He's hanging. I see a sheet. And he was covered up. I see his hand outside of the sheet. And the police officer asked me, do I know who this person is? And they took the sheet off of him. Jay had fallen from the fence he was clinging to and was hit by a car. Only thing I was told on that day was he fit the description of a drug dealer that robbed somebody. So how did Jay end up dead? And what happened in the minutes before he fell onto the highway? The radio dispatches that day tell only part of the story. I went to see Jay's father. My name is John Gideon Cook III, my son's name was John Gideon Cook IV. We always called him Jay. Mr. Cook and I sat together at the dining room table. I asked Mr. Cook to tell me what he remembered about the day Jay died. As I went up Fulton Avenue, I saw some police activity. I had no idea. It was about my son, who had just passed away. When I, when I got to the house, 
precious informed me, and shortly thereafter, my wife came up, and we had to tell her. It hurt so much. I mean, so, so, so much. We didn't know why. We didn't know what happened. We had no idea. But all we knew is that our son was no longer here. Mr. Cook said he went to the police station for answers. Couldn't even get an incident report because they kept on stalling me with that. Well, we're still working on it. Um, We haven't completed it yet. The cops did tell Mr. Cook that they found a gun on Jay. That's impossible, his dad thought. No way was his son packing a gun. We wrote letters to the Department of Justice, to our congressman, to the governor, asking everybody for some kind of help on what, what took place here. Years went by, and the Cook family wasn't any closer to finding out what happened to Jay. That's why we dug in. And initially, we weren't looking to sue the city. We just wanted answers. But because we couldn't get answers, we then felt as if we needed to get some legal counsel. The Cooks hired a lawyer who'd been recommended by a relative. Hi. Hi, how are you? Good, I'm Mary Rose. How are you doing? Nice to meet you. Olu Abiona works out of a row house in Philadelphia. His first floor office is crammed with secondhand furniture. He sits down at a large oak desk and starts to describe the case that he says blew his mind when he first heard about it. When I think back to what happened to Mr. Cook, you know, sometimes it gets me upset. Abiona told the Cooks to consider a civil lawsuit, but he told them they didn't have much time. Let me make it clear. This incident happened back in 2007, but it was sometime in 2009 that my clients first contacted me about it. The years the Cook family had spent trying to get answers on their own had put them dangerously close to the three-year mark when the statute of limitations would run out. Abiona had to act quickly, but he didn't have much to go on. First, he sent out a private investigator, and he found two witnesses who said they saw what happened that day at the fence. The Baltimore police had finally given the Cook family the incident report from August 2007. It said, quote, Officer Dwayne Green was in the area when he noticed an individual who he suspected was in possession of a handgun. A slight foot pursuit ensued. With just the two witnesses and the police report, Abiona filed a suit. It claimed that Jay's constitutional rights were violated, starting when the police first spotted Jay in the alley and chased him. I mean, they said that the way he appeared, it looked like he might have had a weapon on him. They didn't say they saw a weapon. That stop in of itself was racially motivated and a violation of his constitutional rights. Abiona filed a civil rights suit against the police commissioner, officers Dwayne Green and Raymond Howard, who were named in the incident report, and the city of Baltimore. The 
pretrial process got underway with discovery. Both sides are supposed to turn over evidence to each other by a mutually determined date. But the police department didn't turn over much at all. So Abiona filed a subpoena to get them to produce everything they had related to the Cook case. He also asked for the department's policy and procedures on excessive force, stop and frisk, and how officers determine reasonable suspicion. Abiona says this information was crucial to his case. If you're looking at the police department where they have a custom and practice of just stopping and frisking black people, more than 80% of that stop and frisk does not, in fact, result in an arrest. That is discriminatory stop and frisk. It is racial profile, which is part of my client's case. So I'm asking them to produce information that might support that claim. The police said the documents about the department's policies and procedures were privileged, but they said they would provide the files relating to Jay's death. The judge quickly ruled. He said the police didn't have to turn over anything, even the materials related to Jay Cook. The pretrial process wasn't going well for Abiona. He had to begin the depositions with little evidence, and only one of his witnesses would testify against the police. Here we begin tape number one in the deposition of Shamika Summers. Shamika Summers lived across the street from the Route 40 overpass and said that on the afternoon of August 14, 2007, she was sitting outside on the steps to her house. Tell the jury, what did you observe? What did you see? I observed him running. Shamika had a bad toothache. She speaks slowly, and in the deposition video, you can see her holding her cheek. A warning, there's some offensive language here. And I saw the cops running behind them. I saw them walk up like on a bridge part. And then what happened when you saw that? He was trying to hide in the bushes on the fence from the police, but they saw him. And he was shaking the fence. Who was shaking the fence? It was a white cop shaking the fence. He was shaking the fence and calling them names. Calling who names? Jay, saying he was a dumb nigga. Who was saying Jay was a dumb nigga? The cop, the knocker that had the red hat on, a white cop. The lawyer for the Baltimore Police Department also questioned Shamika. Given that you were an eyewitness to uh, this man falling, did you think it was important to go over and to tell the police what you saw? At the time, no, sir. Why not? I didn't want to. I didn't want to talk to the police, sir. Why not? In the video deposition, you see Shamika look at the lawyer for the police department in disbelief. Her eyes wide, as if she's saying, "Are you serious?" Because I didn't want to talk to him. They could have did me the same way they did him. So you were afraid to talk to the police mm-hmm. because they would throw you over the wall to the highway below? I don't know what they may do to me, sir. But back to the cop with the red hat that Shamika mentioned. Abiona showed her photos the police had taken. Now, I want you to go through the pictures one at a time. Tell us if you recognize any of the people there that was around the fence that day. Yeah, I, I recognize that cop. Who's that? That's the one that was chasing him. That was the one chasing Jay? Yeah. Mm-hmm. The officer Shamika Summers circled was Jared Freed. Abiona hadn't named him in the lawsuit because his name wasn't in the police report. The cops who were named in the report were Officer Raymond Howard and Officer Dwayne Green. So what did they say in their depositions? 
Abiona questioned Green first. In the report, he's the one who chased Jay to the fence. Did you ever participate in any way, shape, or form regarding an incident at the Route 40 overpass on August 14, 2007? Yes, sir. Uh, upon hearing the foot pursuit, I drove on the highway in the event that uh, he was going to proceed to run on the highway. Green said he didn't chase Jay. He wasn't even at the fence. That same day, Officer Raymond Howard gave a deposition. He's the officer who wrote and signed the incident report. In preparing your report, did you talk to any police officers to get information as to how the accident happened? Yes. Which officers did you talk to? Howard told Abiona that he talked to a detective who'd arrived after Jay's death. Who else did you talk to? I didn't talk to anybody else. The information that was given to me was that Officer Green was the person that was chasing the gentleman. So Officer Howard wrote the police report using only second-hand information. One more officer gave a deposition. Officer Haywood Bradley testified that he heard the dispatcher on his radio and arrived to see Jay hanging from the ledge of the highway overpass. He said he immediately started trying to rescue Jay. I cut my shirt, my pants, getting over the fence. I finally got over the fence. And that's when I saw him. His face was looking up at me. Because I was telling him, hold on, man, I'm coming. Just hold on. I reached out to grab him. Fell. Like to take a minute? No, I'm okay. In the video deposition, you can see Bradley wipe away tears. I watched him fall. Car ran over him. I started screaming for help. Bradley who's African-American, described what another officer said to him after Jay fell. Again, a warning here about offensive language. He said to me, you need to calm down. I don't know why you worry. It's just one less drug dealer we got to worry about. One less piece of An officer said, this was one less nigger we have to deal with. He did say that too. When Bradley described what happened at the fence, he named other police officers who weren't in the incident report. Two of them were named Angela Choi and Jared Freed. Remember, Freed was the officer Shamika Summers identified as chasing Jay to the fence that day. Did you see Officer Dwayne Green at the scene that day? No. At this point, it's clear. Abiona had named the wrong cops in the lawsuit because the wrong cops were named in the incident report. The report that they gave to my client was totally false. There were other police documents, and they confirmed what Officer Bradley had said. Officers Freed and Choi were at the fence the day Jay died. The police department had that evidence in their custody the whole time, and it should have been handed over during discovery. Abiona tried to add Freed and Choi to the lawsuit. I filed a motion to the judge letting him know these are just newly discovered evidence that we did not have, which changes everything. Because they have been leading us to think it was Officer Green that was initially involved with my client. There was no other way to know. But the judge denied Abiona's motion. He cited procedural rules. Abiona had missed the deadline to add new parties to the suit. Abiona had had what he called ample time to learn the real identities of the officers involved before filing, the judge said the plaintiffs had no one but themselves to blame. The police department intentionally lied 
and lied for years? Maybe if you are told the truth from the beginning, there will not be any issue of a deadline being missed. Abiona did make mistakes. The most glaring was that he sued a black officer for chasing Jay, even though the witnesses said the cop was white. In February of 2011, the judge dismissed the lawsuit. He wrote in his opinion that Abiona hadn't shown due diligence, that the police hadn't acted in a way that shocked the conscience. To the cops, Jay was a suspicious character, just another black guy running in Baltimore. To his parents and Precious, he was their kid, their love, scared for his life. He didn't have a gun. He was going to the store to get a money order for the rent. Did Jay have a gun? None of the witnesses, even the police, saw him with one. What they did see was Officer Choi removing a gun from his body. And there are more questions. Were the officers chasing Jay in uniform or in plain clothes? I tried to interview Officers Choi and Freed. The police department wouldn't make them available, and they never responded to private requests. I wanted to ask them, did Officer Freed shake the fence Jay was clinging to? About 10 years after Jay Cook died, the Justice Department came to Baltimore to investigate the police department. Good morning. Today, the Department of Justice announces the outcome of our investigation and issues a 163-page report detailing our findings. The report confirmed what Abiona was trying to prove in his lawsuit for the Cook family, that the police used racial profiling, that they used force excessively. The report even confirmed that some officers used the N-word when on the job with no repercussions. So what happened to the officers in Jay Cook's case? Officer Howard, who got the facts wrong on the report of Jay's death, left the force a month after the incident to become a police officer in Delaware. Haywood Bradley, the black cop who was there when Jay died, filed a discrimination suit of his own against the department several years later. The suit was dismissed, and Bradley is no longer a policeman. Angela Choi is still on the Baltimore police force. So is Jared Freed, the cop a witness said shook the fence Jay was hanging on to. Mary Rose Madden reported today's episode. Deborah George was the senior editor. Our producer was Anayansi Diaz-Cortez, and we had research help from Ben Spear at WYPR. Today's show was a co-production with WYPR in Baltimore. Our sound design team is the dynamic duo, Jay Breezy, Mr. Jim Briggs, and Fernando, my man, yo, Aruda. Our acting CEO is Krista Scharfenberg. Amy Powell's our editor-in-chief. Our executive producer is Kevin Sullivan. Our theme music is by Camarado Lightning. Support for Reveals provided by the Reva and David Logan Foundation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, and the Ethics and Excellence in Journalism Foundation. Reveal is a co-production of the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. I'm Al Letson, and remember, there is always more to the story. <laughs>